This is the first cassette of Lecture 3 in the series, The Orthodox Church in Alaska by Father Michael Alexa. The title of this lecture is The Monastic Mission to Kodiak and the First Fruits of the Harvest, St. Herman, St. Peter the Aleute, and others. First of all, we, we ended last time by mentioning that Gregory Shelikov trying to get his monopoly. He wanted a monopoly. He wanted to have complete control over all the fur trade in Alaska. Enough of this um, freelance stuff, small boats, 10 pots and 40 blankets and that kind of stuff, going back with 50 pelts. Let's get serious about the fur trade. Let's set up permanent outposts. And actually between the lines you can read here, and let's not actually trade anymore. Let's just go in there with our pistols already drawn and get those native Alaskans out there to work seriously, you know, get to work. Why should we pay them? We're in a position to simply force them to bring us the pelts we need. I mean, that's really behind Shelikov's idea. Shelikov, Shelikov went to, uh, we know about Glatov, first of all. Ivan Glatov came to Kodiak Island, and I think I mentioned the last time, he actually came just trying to get some water. And the Kodiak Alutics didn't even allow him to land. They went out in military formation with their kayaks. And using wooden shields, they protected themselves from the musket balls that the, whoever was on board the ship might have been able to fire at them. And instead, they lobbed their arrows between the shields up onto the deck of the Russian ship until the Russians just had to sail off without getting the water they had come for and without even negotiating with the Kodiak people. So this was well known. This is the 1760s. 20 years later, when Gregory Shelikov and his other two vessels, only one vessel made it to Alaska, but when his small fleet, like the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, only one actually made it to America, the same thing happened. Only the three states actually made it to, to Kodiak Island. But when he was equipping his expedition to Kodiak, he knew they were going to have trouble because all experience, all reports from Kodiak led to the conclusion, the Kodiak people are not going to cooperate. They're going to drive you away. The real people don't like humanoids landing. Right? You don't allow people from other tribes. Now, the Unangan people of the Illusion Chain, the people who are in this green area on our map, and the Kodiak people, shaded in blue, were traditional enemies, and they used to raid each other, taking prisoners of war to use as slaves, because both were slave-owning societies. So there were Kodiak prisoners of war, slaves, at Unalaska, where the Russians were already established, at least where there had been plenty of Creole marriages and where there were uh, people of Siberian background intermarried with native Alaskans. So Shelikov, very wisely, from his strategic perspective, went first to Unalaska and ransomed a Kodiak slave, someone who had already learned Russian by being in close proximity with Siberians for long enough, and then brought this man, whose name we have, Kashpak, took Kashpak home. Well, Kashpak was very happy to be going home, but of course there was a price. Kashpak was to be the intermediary between Shelikov and his, his colonists now. These are people who had come to stay, come to occupy land and build trading posts, outposts, 
small forts actually, owned by the Shelikov Golikov Company. That's what the company was called at this time. And they knew they were going to be in for probably a fight. But they didn't want to fight if they could avoid it. So Kashbok comes along. And Shelikov sends him looking for some Kodiak folks. There's a problem with the name for Kodiak people. In pre-contact times, Kodiak people called themselves Suhbiak, which is closely related to Yupiak or Yupik. And in fact, the languages are probably 80% intelligible. They're as close as Spanish and Italian, probably. So you might not speak one, but you could probably get by with a few gestures and points and pointing your fingers, and then with enough vocabulary, you could make yourself understood. That's between the Yupiks, however, and the Kodiak people, who called themselves Suhbiak at this time. The, Alutic, the people of the Aleutian Islands, the Unangan, called their enemies on Kodiak Island Koniaga. Anthropologists have used this name to identify the Kodiak people and call them Koniag. And even the native corporation that was founded under the Land Claims Settlement Act for Kodiak Island was named Koniag. But please notice, the name Koniaga does not come from the people of Kodiak. It's their former enemy's name for them and has no meaning whatsoever in their own language. But anthropologists have used this. For the last 100, 150 years, the people of Kodiak have called themselves Alutik, identifying themselves as Aleut. The Unangan people, however, also call themselves Aleut in English. And much to my dismay, when I was first traveling around Iliamna Lake, there are Yupik-speaking people who insist that they also are Aleut. So we have three different native Alaskan tribes speaking three mutually unintelligible languages, two of them former hostile enemies, one to the other, all insisting that they're the real Aleuts. You want to say, well, the real Aleuts, please stand up, and all three do it. <laughs> Uh, I spent probably 20 years puzzling over this until I came across a parallel situation in the center of Western Europe, Switzerland. If you parachuted down into Geneva, you would think you were still in France, except they speak French a little slower than they do in Paris. If you parachuted and missed Geneva and landed in Zurich, you'd hear them speaking German, or at least a variant. And then if you landed in the southern part of Switzerland, they'd be speaking Italian. And there's another small area where they speak a language called Romanche. And then they put Latin on all their license plates as the only common ancient language they use. Helvetia, you know, is the, is the name on the, for Switzerland in Latin. In any case, you have people who you would think would be French or German or Italian and who speak those languages but insist that their identity is Swiss. What creates the Swiss identity? A common history. A common cultural background and a common history. So it is in the Russian period, the people who call themselves Aleut develop a common Aleut identity, even though in pre-contact times, they spoke, and still do many of them speak, mutually unintelligible languages. So it's, it happens under certain rare conditions. And we'll, we'll outline that by the end of the, probably in the last lecture, this Aleut identity. But I mention all of this because Kodiak people have this identity crisis in English. They're not quite sure what to call themselves. Suhbiak is one thing, but no one's called themselves Suhbiak for 200 years, so it doesn't quite hold. Uh, Koniak doesn't work very well because it's not even a, a word from your own language. It's from the Unangan language of the Aleutian chain. And so most of them have identified traditionally as Alutic in their own language and Aleut in English, although that usually arises, uh, makes problems with the Unangan who claim that they have the copyright on that 
named since they live in the Aleutian Islands. They must be the real Aleuts. So we have these controversies. I once had students at the seminary arguing about this. One said to the other, you're not the real Aleuts. Uh, we're the real Aleuts. Uh, and the guy, the guy from the Aleutian Islands, actually from the Pribilof, says, no, 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 you're the Eskimo Aleuts. Not to be outdone, the guy from Kodiak said, well, in that case, you're the Japanese Aleuts. <laughs> neither neither would, would accept um, the other as Aleut, and both were sure that they were. But this is, this is all more confusion that comes through history and needs to be sorted out. In any case, at this early time, I'll just call these folks on Kodiak Island uh, the Kodiak people. We won't use any of those labels for now. The Kodiak people they had, had gathered hundreds, if not several thousand people onto a, a, a tiny outcrop of Sitkalitic Island. On, your, on this map, you, you can't even find it. It's such a small place. It's about the size of this room, actually. And they had built Barabras there. And at low tide, only at low tide was it even accessible from the rear. There was a tiny uh, extension of land that comes out from the uh, southern shore of this island. And that's the only way onto it. Because at high tide, the island, it becomes an island. And it's complete cliffs on all sides. It's a, it's a natural fortress. It was called Refuge Rock. And this is the place where the people gathered to take refuge, like running to the castle in medieval times when you saw the enemy coming. You ran to Refuge Rock and took up residence there where there were food supplies there, enough for several weeks for several hundred people. And so when Shelikov sailed into Three Saints Bay, there was an abandoned village in front of him, but no people in it. So they had to send out uh, scouts in different, different directions. And when they came around the, the open seaside of the Kodiak Archipelago on Sitkalitic Island, they spotted these people. The smoke was going up. It was obviously occupied. But no way possibly to get into it. Sheer cliffs and even Shelikov's cannon would have been completely useless trying to shoot up into this fortified uh, refuge. But Goshbuk knew how to get into it. He knew that at low tide, if you came through Fox Lagoon from the north and came through from the back and you waited for the right point, you could get in. He knew how the people got in. And so he led Shelikov to Refuge Rock. And Shelikov and his men dragged their cannon with them. And at dawn, one fine August morning, they began bombardment of this fortress. Uh, Shelikov says he, made, he was able by bribes and uh, gifts to persuade the people to peace of, peacefully allow him to settle at Three Saints Bay. It's simply not true. There was, a, there was a massacre there. Hundreds of people were killed and virtually no Russian or Siberian casualties. This was the Rambo invasion of Alaska. Our history books say it happened 50 years earlier with the Promyshleniki. I don't doubt there were incidents of violence there, but it was not a military conquest. But Kodiak was militarily subdued that day. And the, the exact site of Refuge Rock was for some reason um, remembered by the native people, but not located by archaeologists until about five years ago. Um, having read the Russian description of the battle and how they did this, I know exactly where it was. So I said to the archaeologist who was telling me, oh, we made this wonderful find. We were flying over at low altitudes during, on a foggy day, and we looked down, and we saw these Barabara pits, and we've located Refuge Rock. I said, well, I've always known where Refuge Rock was. First of all, you can ask any grandmother. And secondly, if you read the Russian descriptions, it's, there's only one place that fits the description at all. He said, well, we're, 
okay, you know, where do you think it is? And there was a map right there. It says right there. He said, yep, you're right. All you have to do <laughs> is listen to the people. People know what, it's their own history. And refuge, this whole battle was 1784. But people, it's almost two centuries ago. But uh, people remember. Because this was uh, a disaster from the Kodiak point of view. They were overnight a conquered people. Now, Shelikov then built his village and insisted that so many, I think 20, hostages be delivered to him so there wouldn't be any sneak attacks. And so at first, the, the first intrusion of the Siberians under Shelikov's leadership is quite violent. However, these are 200 bachelors living on one side of the bay and 200 Kodiak folks on the other side of Three Saints Bay. And in 1791, seven years later, when the Billings expedition comes through on their round-the-world cruise, the chaplain, Father Vasily Sivtsov, is busy for a week performing and then registering all the marriages. Even though the whole thing starts off on a very violent and unhappy note, within seven years, enough romances blossom between the two sides that Shelikov is busy. We have the, we have the uh, same thing, the same pattern going on in, on Kodiak as had been going on in the Aleutian Islands and much earlier for centuries already in Siberia. So even there, even though Shelikov's invasion is a real invasion and there's the first Aleut traitor, you know, the first Quisling, Kashpak, who goes down in history as the one who, traded, who, who betrayed his own people. Um, we have all that. We also have the beginning of the first, again, the first chapel on Kodiak Island is built at Three Saints Bay. The chapel is later moved up the coast a little bit. It's the oldest continuous parish in North America, Three Saints Church at Old Harbor, Alaska, which just by coincidence or by providence happened to be the first parish I ever went to in Alaska. That's the village 130 years later who had no priest and couldn't find one. They wrote to Bishop, the, then Bishop Theodosius, now Metropolitan Theodosius, and said, send us a priest, 1969. Um, he said, uh, how can I? It's impossible. You have no uh, rectory. There's no place for a priest to live in your village. So they found an old house that no one was using and fixed it up and reattached the wiring and put in the plumbing and that sort of thing. And they wrote back about a year later and said, we've got the house, send us a priest. He responded, uh, how can I? You have no money to support a priest. You have, to have, you have to prove to me that you have a salary, that you have money in the bank, that when someone comes there, you'll be able to support him. So the next fish, fishing season, they all took a collection. They put so many thousands of dollars in the bank and wrote to the bishop, send us a priest. Uh, at this point, the, the bishop had to say, actually, I don't have one I can send you. Well, not, they weren't willing at that point to take no for an answer. They already had the house. They already had the money. They said, okay, send us a seminarian. <laughs> and that's how I got to Alaska. <laughs> this letter came long after I had given up any hope of getting here in the summer of 1970. Uh, I had decided someday to come to Alaska because like your map out here, I met a student when I was still in college, the map of Alaska that you have covered with pins. I saw a map identical to that in the dormitory of St. Vladimir's in 1967. I was there for Pascha, the first time I'd ever visited the seminary campus when I was still thinking about going to St. Vladimir's. And I'd come up for Holy Week and I, I walked into a room that looked like the guy was going to invade the state. You know, he had all these 
So what is this? And he said, well, these are the Eskimo parishes and the Indian parishes and the Aleut parishes. There are Orthodox people in Alaska? First I heard of it. <laughs> and he said, yeah, remember, like from fifth grade history, Alaska used to be part of the Russian Empire. I vaguely remembered that, but it never crossed my mind that there were Orthodox churches here. Uh, that's really how disconnected we were historically back then. People just didn't realize there was any kind of Orthodox heritage in Alaska. So I thought to myself, since I'd been fascinated, I won't go into all my autobiographical details, but I'd been fascinated with American Indians since I was four years old. I was in war paint since I was 12, till I was 12. <laughs> you know, everybody played cowboys and Indies in the 50s and 60s, but I was never a cowboy. <laughs> Absolutely never. And then when, with this revelation that there were native Alaskans who were Orthodox Christians, this I've got to see. And then out, out of the blue came this letter from Old Harbor, Alaska. We've been looking for a priest since St. Herman died, which was 1837. <laughs> so, these people are patient, right? And we're all Orthodox here, the whole village. And we're looking for a priest, and we have this house, and we have the money, and will you please come at least for the summer to do religious education classes for the adults who aren't out fishing and for the kids. And so I had this wonderful experience in Old Harbor. It was love at first sight. <laughs> Anybody who hears me talk about Old Harbor knows that. And uh, I go back as often as I can. It's my Alaskan home. But it was also the place where Shelikoff landed. It's the oldest parish. Alaska history, the written history, started there. And I didn't know that, of course, when I first came. As their priest in the late 70s, I got a grant for about $3,000 to uh, research the history of the village. But I found that after a generation, uh, when you went back a, about a generation or two in the family trees of most of the people there, their grandparents came from some, some other part of the island. They were from the north part, from Yuzinki, they were from Karluk, they were from Akiak, and they had moved there. And maybe in the next generation, they'd move around. The people of Kodiak Island were quite mobile. So I couldn't write a history of the people who lived in Old Harbor without including the whole island. And as I investigated further and further and further and found out many of the things I've already told you about, the Promyshleniki, about Shelikov, about Refuge Rock, and then what I'm going to tell you further about St. Herman and Baranov, and, you know, very different from what the books were telling me, I started documenting it, footnotes, you know, because you, if you don't have footnotes, people won't believe you. If it's, if it's only what grandma says, it's not enough. You have to have documentary proof, especially in historic, historical uh, academic circles. So in 1979, with this mini-grant of about $3,000, I spent almost all of it getting Xerox copies of ar archives from the Library of Congress, some of which... I mentioned to you earlier had been translated into English during the Depression, and some of which were in Russian. And I spent about three years in Old Harbor trying to piece together the story. It came out to a pretty small, actually, about 80-page, 85-page history of Old Harbor, which really encompassed the whole village, and which said some, some things that went completely against Bancroft. I was immediately attacked as a revisionist historian. And they, I was, they even refused to pay me because they said I made it up. But I had my footnotes all in order. And I sent it back to, uh, they sent it back to Washington, D.C. Library of Congress had to go through all the same archives all over again and check every reference, every footnote I made. And they, much to everybody's surprise, they sent it back and they said, he's right. So I got the money, finally, for the job, the grant money. 
was just really reimbursement for the money I'd already spent sending away for all these microfilm printouts and the rest. And little by little, I kept finding more information and more information and more information, and that became Orthodox Alaska. That's the story behind the book. If it weren't for Old Harbor, and if I hadn't lived there, and if it hadn't been for their persistence in 1969, I probably wouldn't be here and this book would never have been written. So it's all to their credit, actually. That's where the story began. Now, Shelikov then, as I told you last night, went back to Russia to lobby for the monopoly he wanted. He claimed to have single-handedly conquered not 400 people, but 10,000. It's always better to bring a highly populated, densely populated island into the empire than a deserted one. So everything shall, it's really quite entertaining to read Gregory Shelikov because he exaggerates everything. You'd think he's a Texan. You know, everything is bigger. <laughs> everything is bigger and grander and more magnificent than it really was. I mean, he, had, he did do some heroic things, but in his, his, his descriptions, it's always so exaggerated. It makes you laugh out loud. So he was such a prevaricator, he's enjoyable. I mean, he was a scoundrel in some ways. And when it comes to the Alutic people, the people of Kodiak, he was their conqueror and not the nicest, gentlest uh, conqueror they could have had. He was brutal with them, at least at the beginning stages. On the other hand, when you read his stories, he, he's such a good uh, cover-up artist. You know, nothing went wrong in Kodiak. They all just practically, they rolled out a red carpet when he landed to hear him talk. It's so totally different from the facts of the case, it, but he does it in such an entertaining and almost charming way. He makes you laugh out loud. That's Shelikov. Well, they didn't give him, as I told you last night, Catherine the Great was reading the less the, the most um, popular economic theories of the time. And laissez-faire French economic theory said, just let the marketplace do its thing. Don't meddle with it. Don't overtax it. Don't overregulate it. And don't give out monopolies. So Shelikov came to the wrong lady at the wrong time, asking for complete control of the fur trade, not only in Alaska, but he wasn't bashful. He asked for the complete control of all commerce with Japan, China, and the Philippines while he was at it. I mean. Why stop at Alaska? He wanted the North Pacific as his private commercial trade zone. Well, Catherine kind of laughed and, uh, and sent him off with a medal on his chest. And he barely got out of town before the Billings expedition came around and said, conditions at Three Saints Bay are atrocious. It's nothing like Shelikov told you. And so Catherine the Great's private secretary said he left town just in time because if this information had come while he was still around, he'd be under arrest. But Shelikov made it back to Irkutsk where he suddenly died of acute stomach cramps. We suspect he was bumped off, and probably by his lovely wife, Natalia. <laughs> but this is a murder mystery we may never crack. Uh, Lydia Black and I have these suspicions. You see, he died so suddenly and at, at the age of something like 42. It could have been appendicitis. It could have been something they didn't diagnose, right? But stomach cramps? You take Tums. You don't die from it, right? <laughs> So exactly what he died of, we're not sure. It's, it's, it could be, Lydia believes it's arsenic, and of course we could prove that with some forensic exploration of his rather magnificent tomb, which he designed himself, as the Russian Columbus. I mean, talk about exaggeration. He wasn't even the first guy here. Bering or, Sh or Chirikov would have had that kind of claim, but it's Shelikov who claimed all these wonderful things for himself. The, the reason that we suspect, perhaps, um, Grisha was bumped off by Natalia, is that not only because his death was so sudden, but because she was very distraught, 
uh, as another one of the ploys Gregory tried to uh, manipulate while he was getting, trying to get his monopoly. He married his daughter off to a highly placed mm, juvenile delinquent who was going to military school with the future Tsar. See, Catherine said no, but Catherine was old. She wouldn't last much longer, Gregory figured. And so if you couldn't get a yes from the current monarch, get things ready for the next one. And Tsar Paul, Catherine's son, would, was soon to ascend the throne. Now, Shelikov was a commoner. He had no aristocratic pretensions or connections. But he made friends with Nikolai Razanov, for whom the longest street in Kodiak is named. <laughs> we name all our streets and islands after these guys without because it comes out of Bancroft. Bancroft's responsible for all of this. But um, he, he found Nikolai Razanov, who had been given the ultimatum by the courts to either go to jail or go to military school and straighten up his act. So he chose military school instead of jail. And he wound up as a classmate of the Tsar. They had sent him to military school not because he was a wealthy aristocrat, but because he was such a troubled youth. That happens today to some, folks, some kids too. Well, being a commoner and having no real rank or money, Shelikov latched on to Nikolai and said, if you marry my daughter, her dowry will be so many hundred shares in the Shelikov Golikov company. Now, Nikolai Razanov, having no resources of his own, thought, if this company succeeds, well and good, I'll be a rich man after all. And so 14-year-old Anna was married to this rather nasty guy, in my opinion, Nikolai Razanov. At least that's my preliminary findings. I can't give you a full biography of Nikolai either. But it doesn't look good because Anna only lived for two and a half years. And Lydia Black, the foremost anthropologist historian of Russian America, and I both have these suspicions that knowing what kind of character this dead-end kid was, what kind of juvenile delinquent he was in the first place, and for uh, the marriage to last for two years, was there domestic violence here? And it's soon after Anna's death that Gregory suddenly dies. We think Natalia decided to wipe the slate clean all the way around. She then takes over the company, and they do get the monopoly after Gregory dies. Because Catherine the Great dies, Tsar Paul becomes Tsar, and Nikolai Razanov, his, his high school chum, becomes a very influential member of Tsar Paul's court. And, and he lobbies for the monopoly for what becomes the Russian-American company in 1799. It's all in the family, you see. It's all these intrigues, intermarriages. And the Tsar becomes a stockholder in the company. And Nikolai, of course, is a, is a share. It would be all con conflict of interest in today's terms, but there were no laws against it, as there aren't yet in Russia. So, so the system worked for Gregory posthumously. The other card, so to speak, that Gregory tried to play with Catherine was the clergy card. The, I built a chapel, he said, in a school. I've baptized myself, several of the Aleutic folks, the Aleut people of Kodiak in, my, in the village, and they're hungering and thirsting for more knowledge of our holy faith. So please give me some clergy. Give me permission to recruit some clergy, and that she did grant, as we know. Seven monks left with a great deal of public fanfare in the winter of 1794 and spent nine months mostly walking to Alaska.
Shalikov did provide some horses once they got to Irkutsk to cross the mountains, but mostly it was on foot. It's 8,000 mile journey, the longest overseas missionary effort of the Russian Orthodox Church in its history. And we were the beneficiaries because in September, September 24th, 1794, the delegation from Valam Monastery and also three monks from Konovitsa, three others, um, from a neighboring monastery on Lake Ladoga, the largest lake in Europe actually, up there by the Finnish border, they arrived in Kodiak. And they went into immediate shock, not culture shock, because they'd lived in Siberia and they lived in the Arctic. And Bancroft says they were, he depicts these monks as if they were genteel country folk, you know, aristocratic, who weren't used to getting their fingers dirty. Well, anybody who knows anything about Orthodox monastic life knows that that's not the way monks live. Uh, these guys were very hard working, you know, getting their fingers dirty was the least of their problems. They were used to chopping wood and packing water and doing manual farm, farm work, and especially at Valamo where the climate is very cold and it's very difficult to eke out a living to support a community of thousands of monks as Valamo was, was really a, quite a heroic effort. And it still is to this day, as anybody who's visited Russia or been to Valam knows. It, it wasn't because they were used to being waited on having butlers and maids at their, at their beck and call. It was because Kodiak was nothing like the town Shelikov had described to them. Shelikov, again, the great prevaricator, the great tall tale, teller of tall tales, uh, had told them what a perfect, pristine, and gorgeous village, idyllic place Kodiak was. Instead, what the monks found was totally different, and they didn't blame Shelikov. They blamed Alexander Branov. The, the company manager. They said, you know, Grisha, Gregory, our dear friend, conditions here are nothing the way you described. You said there was a church. There's no church. You said there'd be a house for us. There's no house. We have to live in the barracks with everybody else. And these promishleniks, these men that Shelikov has, bring in young girls, 12 and 13 years old, against their will. They're being abused. They're being raped, really. And we have, to, we have to stay in the same building with this immorality? This is intolerable. This should all be reported to the government. You've got to do something about this. You've got to get rid of this guy. And then they go on, there's no food here. You said that, uh, that there's going to be food for us and there was the, f the colony was well supplied. Everybody here is going hungry except Baranov. He just snaps his fingers and they bring him anything he wants to eat. But the rest of us, we have to scrounge for food most of the day. We go out clouding, digging at every low tide. We've got no clothes to wear. We have no food to eat. And we should really report this to the governor. But we're waiting for you to take care of it. We don't want to get you in trouble. And they go on with a long list of abuses. Father Yosef, the head of the mission, finally concludes, there's something else I have to report. Some of these men have put in their seven years. That's what the average Pomishlinic did. They signed on for seven years. We have this at Prudhoe Bay today, right? You can be so many months on and so many months off. There's always somebody at Prudhoe Bay, but not the same crew. And nowadays you can be on for so many weeks or months and then off for so many weeks or months. Jet travel allows for that. When it takes a year to get to Alaska, you cannot have people on for six weeks, off for six weeks. So they signed on for seven-week contracts, seven-year contracts, excuse me. And then they were, unless they had some personal reasons for remaining in Alaska, their tour of duty was up, and that particular Promishlenik had to go home. In other words, these were not colonies like Plymouth Rock, 
where people came and stayed and settled. The only exception was if you had married locally. If you had a local wife, you had the option of staying. Because, or you could take your family back to Russia. But most native Alaskan women and their kids were very reluctant to go to a country they had never seen and where they would certainly have been uh, outcasts or aliens. It's certainly different. Now, in rural Siberia, it might not have been all that terrible, but they had no way of knowing that. So what the last thing, it's significant that Father Yosef says this. In 1795, after being in Kodiak about uh, eight months, his first letter back to Shelikov reporting on conditions, he says, uh, there are some Promishleniks who say they're going to leave and take their children, but not their wives, with them. And if they do that, we'll report it. It's, it's significant that there are all these incredible abuses that they're reporting to, directly to Shelikov and saying, we should be reporting this, but we're going to give you the chance to clean this up. But here's where they drew the line. Children will not be removed from their parents, and they will not be taken away from their mothers, because if that happens, they're going straight to the authorities. Now, the problem is, of course, that there were no FedEx offices in those days. It took six to nine months for a letter to go from Kodiak by boat well, think of what that meant before the Suez or Panama canals were dug. It either went to Okhotsk and then overland across all of Russia to get to St. Petersburg, or it went around the Cape, of, Cape Horn of Africa or around Tierra de Fuego. It was several months in either direction. And here's the real catch. All mail went out on company ships. You can easily tell from what Alexander Baranov writes that he's intercepting and reading everything the monks are saying. At one point, several years later, Baranov writes, uh, the, the monks write to Shelikov again before he dies. I can't tell you everything that's going on here. If I had to report everything, it would fill a book. On the same dispatch, the same year, Probably on the same boat, I, haven't been, I can't check that for sure. But Aranoff writes, these monks are causing me so much trouble. I can't tell you, I don't have time to write all the burden they add to my life. If I had to tell you everything, it would fill a library. <laughs> now, you can tell even from this hyperbole who's reading whose mail. Right? So this is what happens for years. The monastic community in Kodiak is faced with all these abuses being perpetrated on the very people they came to evangelize. How can they preach the gospel to people who are being so oppressed and exploited by their fellow countrymen? How can they speak to them about the light of Christ and the, and the joy of the resurrection when these people are being killed? And they write really pathetic reports of how their friends, many of them already baptized, come with the best clothing they have. Kamaleka is made of that, those guts and feathers and embroidery that I described to you. And they say to the monks, save this for us so that when we die, you can bury us in these. And there were reports of Ivan Kuskov going around the island with a cannon mounted on his boat, on the front of his boat, saying to people, to whole villages, at the end of the summer, now we want you to hunt for us. And we want you to go today. And we, won't, we don't want you to come back until you fill out your quota. And the people protest, but there are no sea otters anywhere around here. We don't care where you get them from, just go. But there's a big storm coming. Just go and go now. Or, and this was the threat, not to kill the people themselves, but by the end of August to destroy all the food they had put up during the summer, which would have starved them during the winter. 
So with a cannon pointed at your, at your smokehouse, you go fishing, you go hunting. And there were reports of literally hundreds of kayaks being lost at sea. This name Kuskov is significant. I heard an Aleut woman in the early 70s scolding a, a, a disobedient grandchild, saying to him or her, if you don't behave, Kuskov will get you. <laughs> at this time, I didn't know who Kuskov was. But on further investigation, we find out Ivan Kuskov was Alexander Baranov's foreman and right-hand man. And he's the one who went around the island with this cannon mounted on his boat. There's a house at Fort Ross, California, named the Kuskov House. He was the commandant there. But who did all the work at Fort Ross, California? People from Kodiak, who were taken, impressed, one could say, into, gov into company service, drafted at gunpoint, and left home never to return again. So you can see why the name Kuskov is synonymous with boogeyman. He's the guy who gets you, takes you away, and you never come home. Exactly like, uh, you know, when you scold naughty kids, if you don't behave, you, it depends on your culture. I was told you'd be given to the Indians, which wouldn't have bothered me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but in other cultures, the gypsies will get you. There's always some other group, you know, of predators waiting to get you, and naughty children are their particular target, and so you should behave, otherwise they'll take you away. Well, so Kuskov's name comes down in infamy in the oral tradition of the native people of Kodiak. And yet, if you go to Fort Ross, Kuskov House, he looks like a country gentleman. He's got this house. He's the commandant. The biggest house inside the fort is named for him. And of course, down there, he came and built this fort. And there was this great economic enterprise. It didn't work out very well as an agricultural station. But it's still a, national, a state historic site. Fort Ross, California, and it figures uh, in the history of Northern California. In any case, it's the Kuskov enterprise. The people who manned it were people from Kodiak. As it turns out, during this time period, 1791 to 1818, these are the years Alexander Baranov was governor of Alaska. It's a pretty long time. One could say he was virtual dictator of Alaska during these years because there was no restraining force to stop him from doing whatever he pleased. And the monastic mission coming in 1794, and St. Herman is there till 1837, so he outlives and outlasts Alexander Baranov. The monastic mission is witness to the worst of times, these, the first 10 years or so of Baranov's rule. And we have the documents, we have their letters, we have their appeals for help. Father Yosef, the head of the mission, in 1797 decides to go back and report directly to the authorities in Siberia, to the governor, who's the next highest up, on conditions in Kodiak. And they listen attentive, attentively to his reports, and they decide to act. They appoint him and ordain him Bishop of Kodiak, the only man in history who has ever had that title. Now, you see, in the Russian system, everyone had their rank. Peter the Great saw to that. Like we have GS1, GS2, GS3, and so forth in the civil service. So bishops and governors were about the same rank because they governed pretty much the same territory. So by making Yosef bishop, they put him on a social and political level at least equal, if not surpassing, Baranov's. He would have had the authority to kind of stop at least some of the abuses. But 
the ship bringing Father Yosaf and Father Makari, who had gone to the Aleutian Islands and also gone, gone back without permission, so he got disciplined for that. But Makari from the Aleutian Islands, who also had gone back to Russia to report to the authorities. And the new bishop, Yosaf, sank off the coast of Unalaska, and Baranov's rule lasted another nearly 20 years. So there was an attempt, as best they could from thousands of miles away, to restrain Baranov, but it failed. Now the reports coming to Alaska, of course, were contradictory. The monks were saying it would fill a book. Baranov was saying it was filling a library. If you were sitting in St. Petersburg and you got such completely contradictory reports about what was going on in Kodiak, you'd, you'd be left in dismay and confusion what to do, who to believe, what's really going on there. The Tsar became personally involved and concerned and sent his father confessor, Hiram Gideon, from the St. Alexander Nevsky Monastery, Lavra, in the center of the city. And Gideon came and spent several years in Kodiak and visiting other parts of Alaska and corroborates the monk's version of the, all the events that had transpired since 1794. In 1801, I think, or no, it's New Year's Day, 1802, when the Tsar had already ascended the throne, when Tsar Paul had already become the ruler of Russia, there went out a decree that everyone should swear allegiance to the new Tsar, because this, was the, this is tantamount to becoming a citizen. If you're a subject of the Tsar, then you're a citizen of the empire. The monks thought, here's our chance. We'll administer the oath of allegiance to all our Kodiak neighbors. They'll become citizens of the empire, and there will be limits as to what Baranov can do with them or to them. And so they sent out a message secretly to all the villages around Kodiak for their, grand, their godchildren and all their associates, the chiefs and all the people, to gather at Kodiak to receive and to take this oath. Baranov got wind of it. He started arresting people. He put the monks under house arrest. This is the cooperation between church and state in old Kodiak. You know, everyone, is, everyone thinks that if among the Russians, the government authorities, civil authorities, and the church authorities always work hand in glove. It was hardly the case in old Russian America, at least during the Baranov times. And uh, we even have almost hilarious um, escape attempts once some, some, monk, some of the natives did make it into Kodiak and secretly took the oath of allegiance to the Tsar inside the uh, house where the monks by then were living. And then Baranov knew that the Aleuts were in there and he wanted them arrested. So the monks dressed up in the Aleut clothes and sne sneaked out it but made enough noise to, so that everyone would know they were doing it. And while the monks went down to the kayaks in one direction, the Aleuts escaped in the other, the Baranov's men ran after the monks instead of the Aleuts and wound up arresting the Aleuts, the, the monks. And when they found that they had caught the monks, beards and all, you know, they, they weren't very Aleut looking, but it was dark, you see. They were furious that the monks had pulled a fast one on the, those who had just taken the oath of allegiance with certificates to prove it, of course. You have to have it in writing or it didn't happen. Um, they made their getaway. So it was these kind of antics that that kind of constantly infuriated Baranov because the monks were constantly taking the side of the Aleuts against his orders. That's why in the Tropart of St. Herman he's called uh, intercessor and defender of the oppressed. Gideon comes and corroborates all the uh, reports that the monks have filed rather than what Razanov and Baranov, you see, well, I forgot to mention that. 
when the Tsar sent Gideon to be his representative to inv investigate the colony, the company board of directors had an emergency meeting and they sent Nikolai Razanov to Alaska to do his own independent inspection with the idea that he also could write a report condemning the clergy and backing Baranov. And that's exactly what he did, actually. <laughs> to make it even worse, by the time both reports came back, both Razanov's and Father Gideon's, the Tsar had been overthrown <laughs> in a coup d'etat. And Alexander I was the new Tsar, who didn't care anything about any of this, actually. He didn't have any stock in the company. <laughs> father Gideon was not his father confessor, and he had no idea who this thug Nikolai Razanov was. And then Razanov dies anyway. He's thrown from his horse in Siberia, and that's the end of Nikolai Razanov and the Hoshalikov dynasty. In any case, that's a very confusing story, but it's nothing like what Bancroft writes in his book. This message is continued on side two. In any case, that's a very confusing story but it's nothing like what Bancroft writes in his book. In Bancroft's book, the monks are nothing but meddlesome busybodies who don't understand the company's philanthropic and social purposes. And, the, and they deserve to be arrested because they were insubordinate and disobedient to government authorities. And there's nothing positive about the monks at all in Bancroft's history, which is why in our history books of Alaska, you very seldom, if ever, find any mention of the monks at all, and if, if so, one pious monk, Herman, managed somehow to get into this group, but otherwise they were nothing but a bunch of uh, meddlesome uh, and in, uninformed and ignorant uh, provocateurs who tried to stir the Aleuts to rebellion, which is exactly what Baranov thought of this Oath of Allegiance scheme of theirs. There are pages and pages to be written. Baranov writes reports, the monks write reports, and it's almost comic if it weren't so tragic. People dressing up in each other's costumes, sneaking out of the house, house arrests, and all the rest. What, what this boils down to, however, is an, a very anti-monastic, anti-missionary attitude on the part of the people in Kodiak. Baranov is no fan of the monks. They're at odds from the very beginning. He's reading the reports that blow the whistle on his activities. This he doesn't like, obviously. And so they're very happy when one of the ringleaders, one of the most stalwart, a young military man actually, a reti not retired, but one who had, an officer who had resigned his commission in the Russian military, the monk Yuvenali, leaves town. Baranov even says, if we could crush this monk Herman, get rid of Yoasaf, and, and eliminate Yuvenali, we'd be in the clear, because the others will keep quiet. We can intimidate them. But those three are our main problem. So Yuvenali leaves town, because he and Father Makari, the one who winds up in Russia, AWOL, are arguing. On Kodiak, St. Herman records, 1796, I heard Father Makari and Father Yuvenali arguing this afternoon, and their argument gave me great joy. This is the gist of Father Herman's uh, correspondence. He's writing to the abbot back at Valam. Because they were arguing about 
who was going to evangelize which territory next. They had both been around Kodiak Island and baptized over 10,000 converts. But now, Father Makari was going to go out in the Aleutian Islands. And Father Yuvanali was going north into Cook Inlet. They were arguing, to whom did this territory belong that lay between them? Father Yuvanali says, I plan to head after I finish the Aleutian chain. I'm going to head this way to find those Russian settlements. Remember, we mentioned Dezhnev's voyage. Rumors of Russian settlements in this area abounded down in Kodiak. I'm going to find those guys, link up with them up here in this region. Yuvanali said, no, 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 no. I'm going in that direction. Because obviously this area is cl more closely connected to me than the end of the Aleutian Islands will be to you. Yuvanali had a point. And unfortunately, even Father Makari was forced to admit, you're right. The Aleutian Islands are over a thousand miles long. By the time he gets out here to Attu, it's much too far to go all the way back and then head north to the Seward Peninsula. However, if Father Yuvanali was going to evangelize the area around Cook Inlet, he could, he could follow one of these rivers to the Bering Sea and then head north. From this argument reported by St. Herman, we know exactly where Father Yuvanali was headed. We know that he was headed toward the Seward Peninsula. He said so. They argued about it. Father Makari reluctantly agreed. Okay, you go. I'll never make it there. I won't have time. It's too far and so forth. So in 1796, Father Yuvanali, Hiram Monk Yuvanali, 35 years old, a young man in his prime, former military man, strong, in good health, headed for, from Kodiak to the Kenai Peninsula and he began the evangelization of the people actually in this area. The fact that the Eklutna Chapel goes back very far, the old church, indicates how long there have been Orthodox Christians in your neighborhood, and how probably St. Juvenali himself was the first to baptize the Nina people here in the Cook Inlet area, and more than likely, the people starting at Kenai and then moving here to Eklutna. Having spent at least a year going up one side and down the other, visiting the Tyonic people, for example, he asked and inquired how he might from there make his way westward. Tyonic uh, people know how to get through the mountains. Through the mountains to Lake, Iliam Lake Clark, then Lake Iliamna, and then out to the Bering Sea. I know this because I asked them. Um, and they, so they, it's more than likely that from Tyonic he, he made progress the next spring. So we know he visited Lake Iliamna. I was once priest for this area, 17 villages under my pastoral care, and I spent a lot of time in smaller airplanes than I do now. And I asked the people here because according to all the books I'd read, starting with Bancroft, this is the area where Father Juvenali was martyred. On some icons we even see Saint Juvenali of Iliamna. But everyone in Iliamna denied the charge. They said, according to our elders, there was an older monk a long time ago. There was a monk who came through here. And there was some trouble between the Promish Lennox operating in this area. And there was. We can substantiate that. The oral tradition is right. Shelikov, Golikov Company was still didn't have their monopoly. And there were rival trading companies. And they were feuding with each other, and specifically in the Iliamna area. So Yuvenali himself found himself 
kind of caught in the crossfire between feuding companies and decided this was not an opportune time to evangelize these native people and continued with his companion further west. So we know he left Lake Iliamna with a companion. Where he picked up this companion, this guide, isn't substantiated. Well, and we know which direction he was headed. There's a river, Lake Iliamna drains into, the, into Bristol Bay, the Quichac River. And from there, knowing that he was, wanted to reach the Seward Peninsula, we can assume he would be paddling along the coastline headed north. But all, all reports, all published reports, starting with Bancroft, said Yuvenali was killed at Lake Iliamna. So I persisted asking my parishioners, come on, come clean, tell me where it happened. And finally, the, the nine people at Nondalton said, okay, Father, we'll tell you. See that rock out there in the middle of the lake? It was a houndtooth kind of rock, you know, like Sugarloaf Mountain in Brazil. A, a tiny island, but uh, with this very strange shape and no beach. They said, we, we call that Monk Rock because our ancestors hauled him out there and killed him there. Now, I know Indian people well enough to know that if you insist that something is true, they'll finally say, okay, we'll agree with you. So they agreed with me and they said it, it happened there, but there's no way to even step on this rock. It has nothing but sli what sliding smooth sides on all sides. In other words, they were saying, if you insist that this is true, fine. And if you're dumb enough to believe this, it's your problem. So I looked at that rock and I said, yeah, right. And they all laughed and I laughed too, which meant we didn't do it. He didn't die here. We know nothing more about this tradition except he went that away. But I didn't believe it, really, because all the books consistently said Iliamna Lake. Then I found out that the entire chapter in Bancroft about Father Juvenali, which is called The Sin of Father Juvenal, is based on a diary of Father Juvenali I mentioned yesterday that Petrov claims to have received the Russian original, translated it into English, which is the only copy that exists, and then sent the Russian original back to Alaska. It, it's absolutely preposterous if you ever see this manuscript. It's still on file at the Bancroft Library in Berkeley, and I've held it in my hand for several hours and laughed all the way through it. We have Father Juvenali sailing on ships named for saints that aren't even on our calendar. <laughs> it's true that Russian ships were named for saints, but they have to be saints that are matched. There, are, there were ships, or there could be, theoretically ships named for Adrian and Natalia because the feast of Adrian and Natalia is one feast day. But you would never have Andrew and Natalia. There's no such feast day as that. And remember, the f there has to be a feast like there is for a church so that that vessel has its holiday. Well, you wouldn't have this combination. Then you look through the log of Russian American company ships. There's no ship that was ever named that. So St. Juvenali sailed on fictional ships, apparently. Then he's dating everything. Um, the calendar date is given, and the feast day, and none of them match. They're not the feast of the Orthodox calendar. An Orthodox Christian looking at this supposed diary of Father Juvenali can see that it's a forgery made up by someone who was completely ignorant of the Orthodox Church's liturgical calendar. And this is supposed to be a hieromonk, a priest monk. When he's celebrating the Feast of Peter and Paul, it comes in September. <laughs> Wait a minute. We all know, a grade school child knows that it's a summer feast. So it's these kind of things. 
from the very beginning. You don't have to go into any details. It's so obvious whoever concocted this diary either didn't know the calendar or counted on no one who ever did checking it. He sails on ships that never existed. He celebrates holidays either on the wrong day or for, or for saints and feasts we don't even have. There's something else suspicious. This is supposed to be a private personal diary, as if there was so much paper around in Russian America that, the, that a monk of all people had time to simply keep his personal memoirs. <laughs> paper was at such a premium that, as we'll read in a, a few minutes, when St. Herman was asked if he could statistically prove the decline in the Kodiak population, he said, I can't because we never had paper to issue baptismal certificates, wedding certificates, or even keep records of funerals. We have no records at all. We were never given the paper or the ink to keep them. And now there's this monk traveling around in the wilderness keeping a daily diary. To make things even more, well, the Bancroft, the sin of Father Juvenali is that the native people, actually not liking him very much, uh, sent the chief's daughter in to seduce him. And he woke up with this young girl in bed with him, and then the natives caught him with her, and it was this reason they were so outraged that the monk had done this to their, the chief's daughter, that he, for this reason they killed him. And, and he's confessing this sin, by the way, in his diary, and it ends in mid-word, mid-sentence. It's a perfect Victorian melodrama where you can see the hatchet coming, you see, and then... <laughs> Under oath, 30 years later, Petrov admitted he made it all up. But scholars refused to change. I have seen stories of Juvenali's sin. It's in Chevenier, Lord of Alaska. There's a whole chapter with the same title. And this gives, of course, St. Juvenali a very bad name. We still, however, even rejecting the diary, persist in believing that something went wrong at Lake Iliamna. Until my father-in-law in the early, mid-70s, told me, out of the clear blue, not knowing anything about my research, about the death of the first priest to ever visit the Cuscoquim Delta at the mouth of the village. He said that when he was a boy, an old man told him that the first priest who ever came to the Cuscoquim was killed at the village of Guinahawk, which is here. I didn't believe it. I figured the first priest to come to this region was Father Yaakov Netsvetov. He spent 20 years in Atka, 18 years at Russian Mission, and died at the age of 60 in Sitka. He was not killed by Eskimo people at the mouth of the Kusukum River. So I let my father-in-law tell me the story, but it was, I didn't accept it, of course, because I, it didn't occur to me that it could be Father Juvenali. He was still dead at Iliamna, for all I knew, because I hadn't gone to Iliamna Lake yet to disprove, all, and I hadn't read the diary yet at Berkeley either. So he told me the story, and the story goes something like this. At Guinahawk, there was a hunting party led by a shaman. The shaman saw the small boat coming and tried to gesture for them to stop, but they kept coming. Now, this was not a kayak. It was called an anyacho, which means in Eskimo, a small boat meaning an open boat. I take it to be a canoe, possibly even one with a small sail, although there's nothing about a sail here. And as they approached, the shaman kept gesturing for them to go away, but they kept approaching anyway. The shaman told his, the hunting party 
with him to prepare their arrows, and they kept coming anyway. Now, there were two people in this boat. The supposed priest, at least in my father-in-law's story, he's identified as a priest already, and his nakista. It's a hard word. It really means reader, chanter. It's assumed that whoever's with the priest is a reader, I suppose. Obviously, it's his guide if this is Father Juvenali. Father Juvenali and, and, and the boat continued to approach, and he was killed almost instantly as he stood in the boat trying to communicate with these people, killed in a hail of arrows, and fell dead in the boat. His companion, his Nakista, however, jumped overboard and began to swim away, attempting to escape. And Yupik people, by the way, have absolutely no swimming ability or tradition. The waters out there are much too cold for anyone in their right mind to go swimming. And so no one knows how to swim. But this guy jumped overboard and began swimming away. They had no way of catching him. They had to get into their kayaks. And so they say it was like a seal hunt. They went after this other man, and he was able to swim underwater and come up for air and dive again. They'd never seen anyone do this before. It was marvelous to them, but they eventually killed this poor guy too. Then back to the boat. They came to Juvenali's body and removed his pectoral cross, a brass pectoral cross. At this point, the shaman put the cross on and tried to do some kind of magic, some kind of ceremony, and he was unable to do it. Anything he tried, instead of giving this cross giving him more power, deprived him of his energy. So he removed it and gave it to someone else, saying, I don't know what this is, but there's some power here I can't deal with. Whoever comes with one of these again, we should probably listen to them. <laughs> now that's the end of the story as my father-in-law told it to me. But at the time I dismissed it as simply an old wives' tale. I still was not taking the oral tradition very seriously, obviously. As I came to realize that Father Juvenali was probably not killed at Iliamna Lake, I called my father-in-law up again and said, tell me that story again, please, Grandpa. And so he did, and I took it all down. Now, how to corroborate this? I began checking, and I let my colleagues know that this was a case I was trying to crack, the longest-standing murder mystery in the history of Alaska, after all. And I came across three notations among missionaries. Father Hilarion, Hiram Monk Hilarion, who replaced Father Netsvyatov on the Yukon River, records in his diary in 1864, when he was passing through Guinahawk, that this is the place Father Juvenali was killed. Father Zakhari Bielkov in 1879, so that's 15 years later, visiting Guinahawk says again, this is the place Father Juvenali was killed. And Father Vasily Orloff in 1885, six years later, also in Guinahawk says, I visited this village. The people told me that I'm not the first priest to visit here, that there were other priests here before me, and they showed me the place where Father Juvenali was killed. They even took him to the place and said it happened right here. Further evidence is that in the next, during the same time period, there's a trading post at the Noshigak, which is further to the south, here, actually here. And the trading post, so from here to here is not that far, people at this trading post encounter an, a man from further north, further up the coast, coming to the trading post to trade wearing a brass cross. So St. Juvenali got into that area 
Three missionaries believed he was killed at Greenhawk, and the oral tradition says it was Greenhawk. There are two questions left. How can we prove it? Is there any other evidence? And then why? Why was he killed at all? Finally, in the Moravian Church archives in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, a colleague of mine going through James John Kilbuck's diaries, Kilbuck was the Moravian missionary in this area about a century ago, came across a whole page notation. John Kilbuck says, apparently I'm not the first Christian missionary to visit here. Many years ago, a priest of the Greco-Russian church approached this site in a small boat. He was killed in a hail of arrows. In his company was a guide who jumped overboard and tried to swim away. The people here say it was like a seal hunt because they had to get into their kayaks to chase him. He repeats, 100 years ago in his diary, verbatim, word for word, the story my father-in-law told me. It's identical because the people in an oral culture take the spoken word that seriously. You don't make things up and you pass it on as accurately as you can. And you don't even dare tell the story until you've heard it several times yourself so you're sure you got it right. Little kids are good at this, by the way. You try to tell them a different version of Little Red Riding Hood or the Three Little Pigs and they'll correct you right away. Because once they've heard the same story twice, that's the way it is, and you don't mess with it. <laughs> well, it's that way in tribal cultures, too. We often think that it's kind of whispered down the alley where it gets garbled from generation to generation, but it's public property. You see, everybody knows the story, so if someone dares get up and starts to tell the story and they get it wrong, there'll be protests from the audience. You know, once you've seen Hamlet or Ju Romeo and Juliet, you can't start changing the script because there'll be other thespians out there who say, those lines were wrong, they didn't memorize, they didn't know their part very well. You become a joke. So before you dare stand up and do that kind of performance, you've got to be sure you've got it right. And this has taught me a lot about the evolution of scripture. The scripture was publicly, the, the gospel was publicly proclaimed. It was public knowledge. The whole community knew it. When the evangelists wrote it down, it wasn't a matter of, a, of an angel whispering in their ear to inspire the text. They were writing down the story as everyone knew it, as the community of the church already had it memorized, so to speak. And if the community saw that it was badly distorted, it was rejected. The Gospels are our treasure because the community of the church already knew the Gospel and could recognize the authentic story when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had written it down. But as Professor Kessich said, first there was the event, and then there were the eyewitnesses, and only later came the writing. Well, the same thing here. The event of Juvenali's murder is nearly two centuries ago, and to this day, you can go to people on the Cuscocomucon Delta and hear the story verbatim. And in the middle of all of that, a hundred years ago, we have a Moravian missionary who wrote it down. You see, we'll believe him because he put it on paper. Now I can footnote it and put it into my reports. <laughs> The fact that three missionaries, three priests, and several elders all agree isn't enough, you see. We need to have the full verbatim account in writing and then we believe it. That's our cultural prejudice, actually. But if you, I've learned a lot about taking the oral tradition seriously. <laughs> and actually, as we've said many times, that it's that oral tradition that goes around the text that makes the text intelligible.
If you don't know the context, you can't understand the text. So I took all my findings to some students of mine from Guinahawk. I didn't expect them to fess up right away. I gave them a copy of my manuscript, the report I had with all these quotations, including the reports from those missionaries, Father Bielkoff and Father uh, Hilarion and uh, Father Orloff and so forth, all of them spelled out. It's a relatively large 40-page report. And I gave it to one of them to read, one of my seniors in college. And I waited about two weeks. And then uh, after that length of time, I said to her, well, um, did you have a chance to read my report? She said, yeah. I said, well, what did you think? It was a long silence, and then my student said to me, well, they didn't know he was a priest. <laughs> Which is probably as close as we'll ever get to a confession from the people of Guinahawk, at least to someone like me. But I have Yupik relatives. I now have a nephew living in that village who married a girl from Guinahawk. So I'm still probing. A friend of mine went to the village a few years ago and acted very innocent, as if he hadn't heard any of my research or any of the stories from upriver, like from my father-in-law. And he asked people what they knew about the disappearance and death of this monk. And he got the whole story, except he reported back to me a new detail that I hadn't heard. As Father Juvenali was approaching the shore, and as they were trying to convince him not to come closer. And as the arrows were about to fly, because that, they were obviously within eyesight of each other, it looked to the people on shore like for some unknown reason, Father Juvenali was suddenly trying to chase away flies. That's how I interpret it. I don't know about you. If I were a priest approaching a Yupik hunting party, and they were all holding arrows pointed in my direction, and I knew they were about to let them all fly. Only you'd probably be going faster. <laughs> and they had never seen anyone make the sign of the cross before. So if he's suddenly crossing himself to them, he's got a mosquito problem. It's a perfectly believable detail. People 200 years later don't make up things like that. It corroborates the authenticity of the story. It's a new detail that says this really happened just the way they said. Now, why was he killed? That's still the mystery. Because although he was very tall, and as a hero monk 35 years old, he probably had a sizable and rather uh, handsome long beard. And they might have been frightened by his whole appearance. But that wouldn't be enough necessarily, or remember, Real people, humanoids, there is that to begin with. But they might have been just as curious. And why kill him right away? They could easily capture him. There was a whole hunting party there. Why was it necessary to defend themselves from him by killing him before he even had a chance to set foot on their land? I, I had a hard time figuring that one out. Until, it's about 10 years ago now, there, there was an exhibit traveling around Alaska. Some of you may have seen it or remember it. It was called Inua, I-N-U-A, the spirit world of the Bering Sea Eskimo. And right here in Anchorage, they had a display of ivory chains, chains carved out of walrus tusk as if it were one piece, but link by link by link. A very difficult process, I would think. I was intrigued by this, and the caption on the chain said, shamans in western Alaska 
developed carved war ivory chains such as these in imitation of Siberian shamans on the, on the other side of the Bering Sea who wore as signs of their rank and status metal chains. Now that all falls into place. The real people of the Kuskokwim Delta, seeing this very strange looking man with a metal chain around his neck, assumed that he was not just an, an intruder, but an intruding shaman. And you can't protect yourself from the magic and powers of a shaman. The only way they could deal with it was to kill him. And that's why the shaman, in the rest of our story, precisely removed the metal chain and, and tried to do whatever magic he could using it. Then when John Kilbuck shows up with a cross, they say, oh, you're one of those guys. We were told we better listen to you this time. And they all become Arabians. <laughs> Which is the status of the village still. There are a few Orthodox families there, but, it, but we don't have a parish there yet. Our, our birth rate isn't quite high enough. But we'll probably have a parish in Quinahawk before, before too many years. I'm, I'm counting on my nephew. <laughs> But the story is still told, and it's told, it's told two centuries later, and it's identical to the way it was at least 100 years ago, because we have the text from 100 years ago. That Reverend John Kilbuck of the Moravian Church out of Bethlehem, PA, did us the favor of writing down. That's as best we can, we can piece together. I think we've cracked the case. I don't think there's any doubt, A, that St. Juvenali was not killed, having been seduced by the Indian princess at the, and the rest, at Iliamna Lake. That's a kind of defamation of character. Baranov hears reports of Juvenali's disappearance and death and says that it's somewhere in this area, Iliamna or someplace on the coast west of there. He's not specific. But Razanov gets the news and says he got what he deserved. You have no positive comments from either Baranov or Razanov when they receive word of St. Juvenali's death. And they're not about to bother, to bother about it, really. They're glad to be rid of him. But you can see why. You can't understand it when you just come across it in a letter by itself, but when you piece together the whole context again, the rivalry, the reports against Baranov, the exposés, the protests, Father Yoasov's death, the house arrest, once you piece together the whole context, the text of Baranov's letter makes sense, even though it's not true. The text of Razanov's, he, he got what he deserves. He was brutal to the natives. He was violent to them. They, they couldn't stand him anymore, and they killed him. That's what Razanov says. None of that's true. He wasn't killed because he, was, he treated the people abusively. Baranov deserved to be bumped off on that account, not Father Yuvenali. But you see, Secular and somewhat anti-religious or even anti-Christian historians will quote only those verses, so to speak, and ignore the rest. And so even to this day, I pick up uh, an Alaska Geographic magazine about Iliamna Lake, and they give you the whole seduction story all over again. <laughs> so you're fighting an uphill battle because they've got Bancroft, and they're quoting Bancroft and paraphrasing Bancroft, and that's been going on for 100 years. And until people just put that whole book aside and realize that so much of it is fabrication and untruth, uh, it's been in print, you see. 
And people, other people have quoted it, and other books have paraphrased it. Hector Chevenier, the whole chapter on Juvenali is right out of Bancroft, because that's all Chevenier did, remember? He took Bancroft and dramatized it, made it more lively and exciting. But it's Bancroft rehashed. And so we're fighting, a, we almost fight an uphill battle to rehabilitate St. Juvenali, who was a great missionary. Throughout the area, he evangelized. The people have remained faithful to orthodoxy to this day. He had to be doing something right. And yet, we don't know how he preached, and we, don't, we know he was very courageous. He approached those guys with their bows and arrows already drawn, pointed at him, pretty much fearlessly, and faced his death. There's two possibilities, by praying for himself or blessing those who are about to kill him in the image of St. Stephen. So I have no problem venerating the memory of St. Juvenali as an heroic missionary. And lastly, we know he was headed in that direction. It all fits together, but it's so many pieces of the same puzzle. And it's so easy to take one piece and think it's the whole story when there's a lot more. St. Innocent says that in his diary, some, in his book, Notes on the Unalaska District, that Father Juvenali was killed at Lake Iliamna. That's the only information he got. It's not, I don't believe it's accurate. Even saints aren't necessarily impeccable historians. And Saint Innocent was remarkable, actually a genius, and we'll talk about him tomorrow. He was a remarkable man when it came to what he saw with his own eyes and heard with his own ears. He heard all those different K's in Clinket. He agonized on how to write them down, but he heard them. He had no linguistic training whatsoever and learned three indigenous languages, Unangan Aliut, Tlingit, which is nearly impossible for anyone who's not Tlingit, and Yakut later on in Siberia. He only had a high school diploma. He designed St. Michael's Cathedral. He built the clock in the clock tower. He made all his own furniture and clocks in his house. He translated the gospel into three different languages, started two different seminaries. And this is what the equivalent of a seminary, which is in Russia at that time pretty much a high school, not even a college degree. He, they wanted to send him to St. Petersburg for additional higher learning, college learning, doctoral work. He wanted to go to Alaska and never went to St. Petersburg except to deliver his translations for publication, which we'll talk about tomorrow. So he, unfortunately, the man I must say I love and admire more, more perhaps than any other Alaskan saint was not right about St. Juvenali. That does not diminish, diminish anything of our admiration for St. Innocent Benjaminov. But I believe that the oral tradition and the archives put together like this indicate we can now say with some confidence, I think with certainty, that St. Juvenali died at the village of Quinahawk at the hands of a Yupik hunting party, which doesn't delight my wife very much, <laughs> but it happens to be the truth. The Indians didn't do it. The Yupiks done it. And the Indians are glad to hear me say that <laughs> because they feel exonerated. They're not the people who killed St. Juvenali. I want to talk more about St. Herman in his latter life, but let's take our break. This lecture is continued on the next cassette.